Hello and welcome to Eden Exchanges, the business journey podcast by Eden Exchange. Today we welcome back returning guest Steve Adji, who is the director of C51 Consulting, a business offering trending virtual kitchen solutions for the Australian hospitality sector. Listen as Steve chats about the future of the hospitality sector, what a virtual kitchen is and how it works, why every restaurant should consider adding a virtual brand to their kitchen, and why you should inquire now to increase your investment potential. Listen on to discover more. Welcome everyone. My name is Ellen Rogers from the Eden Exchange team. Today our returning guest is Steve Adji, who is the founder and owner of C51 Consulting, a business offering trending virtual kitchen solutions for the Australian hospitality sector. Welcome back to the podcast, Steve. Thanks so much, Ellen. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you so much for inviting me back. More than welcome. Now, Steve, just for those who didn't listen the last time, can you recap your professional background and how you came to be the founder and owner of C51 Consulting? Yes, definitely. I'll keep it short and sweet, though, because it's a long and tedious story. I've been in the hospitality game for three decades now. It's Time's getting on. Basically, we identified that there was a massive opportunity in delivery and multiple delivery brands way before COVID impacted hospitality. What happened was basically COVID and the pandemic situation sped things up and we've moved into a space now over the last 18 to 24 months that's purely dealing in that virtual tech space to allow operators to focus on off-premises dining opportunities rather than just the traditional bums on seats model. And now talking more on those trends at the moment and why you came to create C51, What is going on in the industry right now and what's leading it to grow in such a short time? Uh, At the moment, we're finding that even though restrictions are fairly lax and there's not that many lockdowns and density restrictions for venues in particular outside of entertainment, restaurants are really struggling to get people back into venues using traditional promotions and business modelling. Basically, I think the last couple of years, data has shown that people's behavior and spending patterns have changed. They're, they're much more comfortable spending from home and have gotten accustomed to a delivery experience. Even curbside pickup has become a big thing here in Australia. It's been big in America for a couple of years and Europe. Australia is just getting onto it now where people just you know don't want to get out of their cars. They want to do a drive-through. If venues can't offer drive-through, They do a curbside pickup where they can bring the food out to your car window and off you go. We're just not getting the return of the consumer to the venues that was expected once lockdowns were lifted. So we're having to look at alternate ways to sustain these venues and to keep them profitable. And now for anyone who might potentially be scratching their heads throughout this podcast, can you tell us the difference between a ghost kitchen and a virtual kitchen business? So a ghost kitchen is basically a group of individual operators or one operator running multiple brands under the one location. Generally, there is no brick and mortar site. It could be a warehouse or a a large building that has no frontage to customers, no dining, no pickup, just purely delivery model. Whereas a virtual kitchen or they're also called host kitchens, who are what we prefer to deal with. We think that there's more longevity and scalability in this second model is is a traditional restaurant or cafe 
that operates its core business out of a traditional bricks and mortar location and adds on one, two, three, some venues have up to five or six virtual brands that only exist online and can be fulfilled via delivery or pickup, but not as part of the core offering of the business in-house. This includes things like adding day parts. So uh, traditionally a cafe shuts at three. So it could be we add a dinner service there, which is just for delivery purposes, or a restaurant opens only for lunch and dinner. We, We bolt on a breakfast option, or it could be, you know, a burger shop that wants to do some fried chicken or, you know, offer kebabs or things like that, that complement what it's already doing in the same, you know, space. Now, I've never had the opportunity of owning my own hospitality business, but I would imagine that having two businesses running out of the one physical location would be a significant draw on resources. How does the system work optimally without both brands burning out? Good question. There is no opportunity in owning hospitality. It is a calling and it's very painful at the moment. So lucky you that you've never had that calling. To be honest, what we offer is a complete operational system. So it's actually beneficial to the original core brand and business as well as integrating the new operation. So we don't do what a lot of the bigger players overseas are doing and try and just install brands into restaurants without thinking about how it will operationally impact the workflow. Our team of trainers and consultants are very focused on a case-by-case basis, even if it's not face-to-face, even if it's online virtually. We have to work with the operator to install brands and systems that work with their current operations. And we're finding the results are great. We're actually helping them streamline their own business models and work with systems that are proven. We stand by what we install and we operate a very tight system. Profit and loss looks positive you know, from all ends once we can evaluate the way that they currently operate. And how many virtual kitchens do you partner with at C51 Consulting at the moment? At the moment, we have a a book of about 70 venues and six standalone ghost kitchens. Some venues are doing 12 virtual brands out of their restaurants. Some do one, you know, where they just add on a, a component. It's horses for courses, really. What we do is unlike our competitors that are starting to arrive from overseas. There's nobody really doing it in the Australian market apart from us in a proper coordinated form. But the overseas guys are basically just throwing brands at people and saying, look, work it out, you know, just just do it, which isn't working for anybody. And how do you customize and assign each brand to work with a partnering business? You gave an example before with the cafe. How does it strategically work? So basically we look at what the, the venues core cuisine is. So if it's a pizza shop, we evaluate what equipment they have and where their peaks and troughs are in sales. So once that's identified, we're able to present them with either a variation of what they're doing. So we recently just installed at a wood fire pizza place, an Indian take on pizza called Punjabi pizza. It's completely virtual, already doing some good numbers. And it's based on same sort of business model as what they have, but it's using like a naan bread as the base rather than a traditional dough. 
and you know a, a lot of Indian flavors through the ingredients that they already have. So, you know, we're not increasing their pantry list or you know their their stock levels or their costs. It's just about integrating what they've got. So because they're able to sort of do some pasta in there as well. They never have. They've added some pasta to their actual in-store menu and we've created a pasta concept for them virtually where it's doing really well as small takeaway meal kits that people can take home and heat and eat basically. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. You can't just tell them to do burgers, for example, or fried chicken because they don't have the equipment or the know-how or the resources. Sometimes you have to say no to people, like we do turn down some applicants, some interested parties, simply because of the location It may infringe into other people's trading territory, or they want to do something that we can't support, which isn't on demand, on trend, as far as delivery data. So we don't want to go down a path of just doing it for the sake of doing it and then having the headaches after of trying to pull it apart and redo it. Mm, definitely it does still sound like the future i mean <laughs> my local restaurant down the corner of me is a fish and chip shop but they're also an asian night restaurant so they deal with dumplings and stir fries and i don't know it just works you walk into the building you're like hmm what do i want fish and chips or do i want stir fry perfect yeah it's very complimentary what you just said is exactly right is the future we we've got a site in melbourne in richmond called the food hub which has got six brands in there and it's got chicken it's got a jamaican flavored chicken called the jerk it's got burgers it's got fried chicken it has four asian brands called tokyo brands ranging from bao burgers to a whole bunch of things and operationally it is so streamlined it will blow your mind it's just three staff are on doesn't matter what what time of day as a maximum there's three to four staff on lunch times you can probably do with one and a half two staff Now, talking about the staff on board, there is that age-old saying of too many cooks in the kitchen. With how it works, who is in control of both businesses running in the same kitchen? It's one business running under the one venue. So I'm not a fan of leasing out underutilized kitchens. I know there are some companies doing that at the moment, calling it the Airbnb. It could be there's a big space and there's an opportunity to put in an unrelated business partner to the current operator. We don't do that just because operationally, I know that it would be a nightmare for both parties. It's basically run under the management of the, the current owner slash operator. They take it on as a licensed brand and system that they run within their own business. So how does the owner of the virtual brand, if they're not there during the day-to-day running, how do they ensure that the brand is being managed accordingly? Well, we're the owners of the virtual brand. So, well, for about six weeks, we are there day-to-day, <laughs> to be honest. So depending on the operator, we do a three- to six-week onboarding, hands-on 90% of shifts just to make sure that they're coping and they've been trained properly. Once they're onboarded, it's like any other sort of franchise or licensing system where we do have regular weekly meetings. We do mystery shoppers that go and test the food and check it. It's audited. We help them from both sides of the equation. So, you know, we we are the, the licensors of the brand. So we ensure that, well, we try to ensure that it keeps brand integrity and not impact the quality of what customers are getting. 
And can you talk us through how you introduce the virtual brand into the kitchen and what the training integration is like more? So you'll have the person who sold the brand to C51 Consulting, and then you've matched that brand to that partner company. Can you talk a little bit more about what's going on there? We take on the brand and then the creator. If we haven't created it and it's a third party creator, then we manage that for them. That's the relationship we manage from that side. So the actual operator of the venue doesn't have to worry about that component. The venue is trained by by us who are you know, approved by the, the brand creator. So there's quite a bit of training for venues. We don't just leave them with virtual sort of videos and manuals and handbooks. It is very hands-on. We do make sure that we're there during their peak times. We call them the moments of truth. There's no point just talking about it, you know, our trainers are experienced and know general fast food QSR operations and how they apply to to most situations. So we do help them streamline their whole business. So, you know, we offer solutions as far as integrating their POS with their ordering systems and integrating delivery partners through their POS so they're not doing things manually. Look, it's a very hands-on business. It's never going to be a plug-and-play model, no matter how much people think it's, it, it, it can be, it won't be. It's like trying to get somebody to open a traditional franchise business. You know, you need the expertise there to, to help them get off the ground and to help them maintain the momentum that they build. It's much cheaper, though, obviously, because you don't have to invest in equipment and, you know, a venue and decor and all those sorts of things. You're only basically investing in the time that's needed to to get you trained. And you've been working with so many different brands. That is incredible, having so many in your existing repertoire so far. Are you looking to expand into more food sectors at the moment? Is there anything of interest that you want to explore? Funny you mentioned the dumplings. Uh, Who doesn't love dumplings? uh, Well, we have a business partner in the US who's got the Brooklyn Dumpling Shop. We're getting some really good data out of it as far as a modern dumpling, so twists on dumplings. You know, he's doing things like cheeseburger dumplings. He's doing Reuben dumplings. So it's a handheld, one-hand type food that people can eat on the go that has other flavors. It's not just the traditional pork and chicken and those sorts of things. So that's one thing we are exploring heavily at the moment. But look, we're sort of, we're pretty flexible as far as the cuisines. Myself and my core team have been in hospitality for, you know, between us, I'd say 100 years. There are five certified trainers that do all this stuff. You know, they've worked everywhere from the local fish and chip shop to fine dining. So there's a bit of experience there as far as cuisines. Now, you did talk a bit about the low cost involved with running a virtual kitchen. What type of return on investment can a partner expect? We anticipate the initial investment will well and truly be recouped within six months. That's worst case scenario. We haven't had anybody not being able to recoup their investment within six months. We generally see an increase in sales depending on how many virtual brands in the area but just as a ballpark figure we usually see anywhere between five and fifteen thousand dollar per week increase in sales within the first month so working off that initial investment for launch is easily recouped within that six month period 
We also try and avoid any equipment upgrades and work within the parameters of the business to begin with. Once there's proof of concept at that venue and they can see that you know there is an opportunity and it would make sense to invest in that new, I don't know, deep fryer or new technology, then... New shiny new thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a much better conversation than saying to them, well, you need to fork out $100,000 to begin with and then, you know, they're sort of wondering, well, how am I going to get that money back? So we, we try and, you know, soft launch it into a venue that has existing capabilities and, and match it to, you know, what they've got. And it does sound like you have quite a few successful stories so far. Can you tell us about one specifically that worked better than you expected and what made it successful? I've got quite a few, but I've got one that is opening on Monday and I'm very excited about this one because it's going to be successful because pre-orders have already been amazing. I really want to showcase this one because the gentleman is a, a French pastry chef who has been doing basically markets and those sorts of things for many, many years, peddling a product that is very unique. And basically, we haven't been able to find this product anywhere else in Melbourne. It's a sourdough croissant. Unlike the traditional croissants, he has some ancient recipe from, I don't know, the depths of France somewhere that is a, a sourdough croissant and it is absolutely amazing. So we've created a brand for him and a virtual brand to run off the back of that. And he'll be launching on Monday. We've had to do this whole business from start to finish. He'll be working out of a bakery that he runs. And he's also committed to a second location immediately just from the amount of activity of pre-orders and things like that. So He's still got his core business as a baker and, you know, doing the the traditional, you know, bread and pastries and stuff, but we've created a, a virtual brand just for him and depending on how that goes, we're planning to roll that out nationally because we've had a lot of interest already with the, the concept as it's it's very unique. Flipping the table on the success story and talking more about what doesn't work. Have you had any experiences where the food brands just didn't turn out as you expected and you had to change tactic? I mean, not everything works out as on paper, I suppose. I mean, me as a kid, I loved milk and orange juice together. I have no idea why. I was a weird kid. Thought it was amazing, but it didn't work out for other people. So I imagine that's the same for a business concept as well. It sounds like a great idea, but doesn't always take on. Yeah, 100%. That's standard with everything, I guess. Yeah, we've had lots of failures, especially at the beginning. I originally thought, you know, that plug and play model was the way to go, where you could just basically give people a manual, give them a menu, give them, you know, some YouTube videos of how to do it and off they go. Doesn't work. <laughs> no matter how, how much you think it will, it won't work. Operators just need that that TLC, we've had operators change menus, stop serving them, everything you can think of, you know, rename them, just not serve them anymore the way that they were taught. It's just like a traditional franchise, I guess, you know, it's not always going to work. It's a mix of a bad operator, I guess, an incorrect cuisine for the location could be another one. And because it's very early sector here, it's a very early sort of on in the piece, you know, we're, we, we have been doing a lot of trial and error using some venues as, as guinea pigs. 
unfortunately. And we've tried to mitigate losses across all fronts, but there have been some, you know, some interesting disaster stories. And it's just part of the learning curve, I guess. But yeah, we have come a long way in the last sort of six to eight months. And it is a very different model now than what it was, say, this time last year. So I'm confident with the the partners we have now and the scale that we're looking to achieve, we do have a a sustainable and profitable model. Mm, And I'm definitely confident that one day soon there'll be orange flavoured milk in the supermarket somewhere. I'm holding out for that because then I won't be such a weirdo. Yeah, I'm interested to try that. I don't know what my guts are going to think of it, though. <laughs> Probably think it's awful, but <laughs> I don't know. Try something new. Do you still drink it? Nope. <laughs> Maybe after this call, you try it and let me know how you go, and then I'll try it. <laughs> All right, game on. Uh, so <laughs> currently, where are you focusing your evolution and growth of your business? Are you focusing on more acquiring physical site locations? Not as much. We do take the occasional site and turn it into a a multi-brand venue. It's more about facilitating an introduction of brands into existing businesses across different locations. So it's more working with venues that are looking for ways to, to stay relevant and stay profitable. And what is the minimum a partner brand needs to bring to the table to participate in this kind of opportunity? You described certain fit-outs before and venue size that is a pre-requirement? There really is no minimum. There's no one-size-fits-all, I guess. A lot of venues generally in food service have got, you know, some sort of commercial cooking capabilities. If they're serving any type of commercial food, then we're able to integrate with, you know, their sort of equipment and operational model. So, It's very, very flexible. Uh, Venue size doesn't really matter because we're not impacting their their ability to serve front of house customers as long as they can trade the day parts that they want to trade in so they don't have restrictions on early mornings or late nights if they want to be doing that. We've actually just installed a a burger and a chicken menu in a venue that was closing at 9 o'clock and now they're open till six in the morning and they're doing more between nine and six in the morning than they do for the whole day, just because it's near nightclubs and late night, you know, sort of areas. So it's just a matter of understanding what the area and the specific location is capable of. And it's a lot more straightforward than it sounds. Don't think that it's a whole drawn out process. We're really quick and upfront about what what a venue can and can't do and don't want to waste anyone's time, either ours or theirs. And for anyone with a business suitable for a virtual kitchen partnership, what do you think is the key reason they should inquire now? They should inquire now because we have the resources to really get them some great deals with the delivery partners. I don't know how long that's going to last because they're digging their heels in. So we aim and we generally succeed in getting delivery partners to offer a percentage well below the market rates that people are being charged, which is important, obviously, from their bottom line. And we have supply deals that are locked in with suppliers nationally that will need new ones in July. So the next few months are crucial to try and lock in as many venues as we can so they can benefit for the next 12 months rather than having to strike up new deals for the second half of 22. So the two main you know, points of a restaurant's profitability are their, obviously their cost of goods and their labour. Delivery partner costs are 
well managed through our service and maintained. So we do get some excellent deals and support for our venue partners that isn't available to a, a lot of the independent um, operators and anything less than, you know, like a, a, a national brand like McDonald's or KFC. Because we do have that buying power, we, we really do some good negotiating on their behalf. Thanks, Steve. A virtual kitchen opportunity sounds like a great way to boost your business, especially during the pandemic times. Now, for anyone listening to this podcast who is keen to learn more about the virtual kitchen opportunity, there is a button beneath this podcast to submit your inquiry, and the team at C51 Consulting will get the ball rolling ASAP and get you started on your franchising journey. Now, thanks again for joining us again on the podcast today, Steve. We wish you success in your continuing business journey, and we hope to hear from you soon with an update. Thanks, Ellen. I'll definitely update you on that orange-flavoured milk situation. <laughs> I'm going to try. Yeah, definitely. I loved it as a child. We'll see if I love it as an adult. Well, all right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Eden Exchanges was brought to you by the team at Eden Exchange. In this episode, we welcome back returning guest Steve Adji, who is the director of C51 Consulting, a business offering trending virtual kitchen solutions for the Australian hospitality sector. To find out more about Steve and C51 Consulting, or to discover other episodes for Eden Exchanges, head to our networking website, businessbuyinvest.com. You can also subscribe to this series on iTunes, or Stitches if you're using Android. Find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for recent info on the buying, selling, and investing world. Thanks for listening.